This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's just a little after midnight, February 23rd. 1861, in Cecil County, Maryland. Passenger train chuffs steadily through the rural landscape, white steam billowing into the cold night air. The flat farmland gives way to gently rolling hills, shrouded in darkness. Silent, apart from the puffing of the engine and the screech of wheels on cold iron rails. This regular sleeper train is Baltimore bound Its engine, cargo cars, and passenger carriages all appear perfectly standard. Inside, travelers do their best to catch a couple of hours of uncomfortable shut-eye. Again, all seemingly normal. But this train carries a dangerous secret, one which only four passengers aboard know anything about, and one which, if exposed, could change the course of history in the United States. Here, at the very back of the train, the rearmost sleeper carriage plays host to two middle-aged businessmen and a young woman traveling with her invalid brother. But none of them are who they seem to be. One of the businessmen, 300 pounds of muscle and grit, is a man called Ward Hill Lamont. That's not the name he's traveling under. Right now, concealed around his person are a brace of pistols, a loaded revolver, a bowie knife, and some brass knuckles. Lamont is ready for a fight. The other businessman has also lied about the name on his ticket. Unlike his companion, he's short, well-built, with a neat beard. His piercing eyes scan the carriage constantly, ever alert. He, you see, is actually Alan Pinkerton. America's most celebrated and respected private detective, and one of the keepers of the great secret aboard this train tonight. As for the young woman, well, she is young, still in her 20s, and she is a woman. That much is true, but she's no caring sister to an invalid brother. She is Kate Warren, America's first female private detective and the unusually tall, long-legged, wiry man she's carefully concealed behind the curtain of his sleeper berth is not her brother. He is none other than Abraham Lincoln, president-elect of the United States. Right now, he's just nine days off his inauguration in Washington, and if Lamont, Pinkerton, and Warren fail in their mission tonight, there's every chance that he won't live to see that day. You see, Pinkerton and Warren, these eminent super sleuths, have uncovered a secret plot to assassinate the president-elect before he even takes office. Little do they know, but on this dark February night, on this ordinary sleeper train, 
It's more than just the life of a future president that's at stake. In these volatile times, with the threat of civil war looming large, the entire future of the Union hangs in the balance. The plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln is set to happen in a matter of hours. And only these three extraordinary traveling companions are in a position to save him. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who work extraordinary cases. This week, we're following three detectives from the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, America's most famous and influential organization of private detectives. This trio put themselves in the line of fire to save the life of the incoming President of the United States, Mr. Abraham Lincoln. It's a case that'll see them use every trick in the book to infiltrate secret organizations, uncover dangerous and violent militiamen, and get to the heart of the plot that threatens to unsettle the course of U.S. history for good. From Noiser, this is the story of the Baltimore plot, and this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Now, you may be wondering how these three special travelers ended up smuggling the future president on a normal passenger train in the dead of night. Well, it's kind of a long story, and one which begins almost a month earlier, over in Chicago, Illinois. It all started on January 19th. 1861. Alan Pinkerton, founder of the detective agency that bears his name, is in his office in Chicago, writing up his daily report, when a letter arrives. Opening it, his heart drops. The message is from a man called Samuel M. Felton. He's the president of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad, and he's heard a terrible rumor of a plot to attack his company's large paddle steamer. And since this is how they transport their trains across the Susquehanna River, any attack on that boat would have a devastating blow on his ability to run the railroads. And apparently, there's also a plot to blow up the company's bridges between Havre de Grace and Baltimore. The railroad's been Felton's life work. He can't stand the thought of any of it being destroyed. Knowing he'll get no official help to thwart any such plot, Felton has turned to Pinkerton's renowned private agency. He wants the celebrated detective to find out who's behind the threat and make sure it gets stopped. Now, I bet you're wondering what all of this has to do with old Abraham Lincoln. Well, it's kind of complicated, so it's probably a good idea to take a moment to remind ourselves what was going on back then. Now, in the late 1850s, angry rumblings from the southern states are commonplace. An aggressive element in the South is threatening disillusion of the Union. Plans to blow up Washington and seize the arsenal and Navy Yard have been mooted. 
whispered rumors spread of plots to isolate the capital by tearing up the railroads, burning the bridges, and destroying telegraph wires. You name it, nothing is safe. All right, so basically, by the time we reach the presidential elections of 1860, the crack along the Mason-Dixon line is wider than the San Andreas Fault, and Abraham Lincoln becoming president is the last straw for many of his detractors in the South. He may have won the election, but many, especially in Southern states, see Lincoln's election as a threat to their way of life. He hadn't won much favor in the South during the campaign, and he's a far cry from the Southern Democratic Party's John Cabell Breckinridge, who had swept 11 Southern states in the election. Right now, as far as most of the South is concerned, Lincoln is not their president. Even from the moment his nomination as Republican candidate was confirmed, secret societies began springing up in Virginia, Maryland, and the District of Columbia. Now that he's won the election, those societies begin to arm themselves, forming militia ready to strike with devastating force. An uprising from the South looks inevitable. Those once whispered plans to disrupt the inauguration and attack Washington, D.C., now become loud conversations on street corners. So when one such plan reaches the troubled ears of railroad boss Samuel Felton, he feels he has to act fast. And since the Pinkerton Agency has a good track record with railway security already, that's where he turns. Back in his Chicago office, Pinkerton reads Samuel Felton's letter with growing alarm. You see, a large part of Felton's railroad track is on Maryland soil, which is particularly troublesome. In the past few days, the states of Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia have all joined South Carolina in seceding from the Union. Texas and Louisiana are right behind them. Pinkerton knows that Maryland is a hotbed of anti-Northern feeling, and Lincoln's election has only made that worse. With Maryland threatening to quit the Union too, and the outbreak of war looking imminent, Felton's railroad link would be essential for the Union forces fighting in the South. If it's damaged, it would be disastrous. Determined to do everything he can to prevent this, Pinkerton leaves Chicago within hours of receiving the letter. He's Baltimore-bound, and he's taking some of his best agents with him, of which Kate Warren is most certainly one. Kate Warren took up her role in the detective agency one hot summer day, back in 1856, when the 23-year-old widow from New York walked into the room Pinkerton assumed she was asking for a secretarial role. How wrong he'd been. She was there for the advertised detective job, and her argument for why she should get it was compelling. As America's first female private eye, she proved everything she argued on that first day. She can get places no man can. Even now, no one expects this attractive young woman to be an undercover private eye. With a chameleon-like ability to blend into any part of society, she can change her accent, her clothes, her entire demeanor to suit. 
She's one of the canniest agents on Pinkerton's books, and she's going to be worth her weight in gold down in Baltimore. And she's not the only detective Pinkerton is taking to Baltimore with him. He's also chosen new recruit Harry Davies. Now, he may be fresh, but he's also proved that his unassuming personality and boyish good looks hide a razor-sharp mind. He's well-traveled, speaks several languages, and, just like Kate Warren, can adapt to any situation he finds himself in. And perhaps more importantly for this case, Davies has a deep understanding of the Southern way of life, having lived in New Orleans for several years. As they set off for Baltimore, little do the traveling detectives know that the threat to the railroad is only the tip of the iceberg. These Southern rebels intend to halt the presidential inauguration one way or another, and they will stop at nothing to achieve their goal. historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground-up bones and oyster shells. Double-glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Arriving in Baltimore on January the 21st, the crack team from the Pinkerton Agency gets straight to work. Experts in undercover operations, they'll all assume characters to help them uncover the town's secrets. Pinkerton himself will play newly arrived Southern stockbroker John H. Hutchinson. He's rented a suite of offices in a large building on South Street, cleverly chosen because it can be entered from all sides of the block, meaning this team can come and go from different doors without being seen together. Pinkerton's adopted character is a smart one, since it means he can integrate himself with local businessmen and infiltrate the upper echelons of Baltimore society. Someone among these lawyers, shipbuilders, and cotton traders might just be bankrolling whatever secret organizations are in operation down here. Alongside Pinkerton's stockbroker, Kate Warren will adopt the role of Mrs. Cherry, a Southern belle recently arrived from Alabama. Her outfit is complete with a secessionist cockade, a ribbon rosé designed to show her allegiance to the cause. And her job is to befriend the women folk of Baltimore, expressing her own dissatisfaction with the states of the Union and weeding information from them about any subversive plans they may be privy to. And finally, young Harry Davies will become a New Orleans businessman, in town for work, but ready to play. His character, an extreme anti-Union man, 
will donate generously to the interests and activities of the secessionists in Baltimore. And he'll be staying at the city's finest hotel, Barnum's. With his top detectives now in place, Pinkerton sets about uncovering the full scale of the threat and what a threat it turns out to be. The three detectives begin mingling with the locals in bars, hotels, and restaurants, secretly returning to the agency's temporary headquarters to make their daily reports. They quickly learn that the feeling in Baltimore is increasingly hostile towards the president-elect, and anti-abolitionist sentiment is high. Kate Warren, decked out in her Alabama finery, finds the women of the town to be just as bitter in their opposition to Mr. Lincoln's inauguration as their menfolk. She's already hearing whispers of husbands willing to kill the president-elect if that's what it takes to stop his inauguration. When details are announced of Lincoln's intended inauguration tour from Illinois to Washington, D.C., those whispers get louder. It's just been publicly revealed that Lincoln's traveling party will pass through Baltimore, the only slaveholding city on the planned route, apart from Washington itself. Given that Maryland is likely to secede before Lincoln's train even arrives at the border, the wisdom of passing through Baltimore at all is highly questionable. But that's the plan, and it's one that sparks even more concern from Pinkerton and his agents. Sure enough, as soon as the itinerary is published, Lincoln's passage through the city becomes the sole topic of conversation among Baltimore society. The detectives begin hearing increasingly outrageous threats to attack Lincoln and his party. Now, with the full timetable of his journey from Illinois to Washington, now public knowledge, anyone wishing to hurt Lincoln has the means to track his movements right down to the minute. With Kate Warren already reporting a possible threat to attack Lincoln on his journey to Washington, young Harry Davies is now tasked with making friends with the men talking most loudly about their intentions. The bar at Barnum's proves to be the perfect spot for Davies to integrate himself with the locals. It's where visitors from all over the South come to drink and talk, filling the bar with long-haired, finely-dressed antebellum aristocracy. And it's these men who are most vocal in their rejection of Lincoln as their future president. Now, one of the regulars at the bar at Barnum's Hotel, Otis Hillard, proves a useful acquaintance. This heavy-drinking, loose-lipped, boastful man proudly wears a gold badge stamped with a palmetto, the secessionist symbol of South Carolina. It doesn't take many shared drinks for Davies to befriend him, especially since Davies keeps pointedly commenting on his interest in a Southern rebellion. Hillard laps it up, sharing more and more with his new best friend. Davies learns that Hillard has recently joined an armed militia group called the Palmetto Guards, a secret society fiercely opposed to Lincoln's presidency. When Hillard tells him about their keen interest in the exact details of Lincoln's stopover in Baltimore, 
alarm bells start ringing loudly for Davies. Lincoln's special train has already left the station, beginning the well-publicized tour to Washington. Yet, at exactly the same time, the detectives are learning of a plot to stop him from reaching the Capitol at all. Davies' late-night drinking sessions with Hillard also reveal that he and his associates will be tracking Lincoln's train from stop to stop using secret-coded messages. They don't want anyone to know they're monitoring his every move on his way to Baltimore. Hillard suggests that these coded messages are only part of a much larger plot, but he stops short of telling Davies what that scheme is. Davies hurries his intel back to Pinkerton, the office. As it turns out, Pinkerton has also dug up some disturbing information. A businessman called Luckett occupies the offices across from the Pinkertons, and he's fallen for the charms of Pinkerton's alter ego, John H. Hutchison. Having learned of Luckett's secessionist leanings, Pinkerton lured the man into his confidence with the offer of a reasonable donation from his own pocket to help their cause. As he handed over the cash, though, he pulled Luckett in close. In a low voice, he warned him to be careful who he speaks to. You never know, he said, when northern agents might be listening. His ruse worked. The donation, coupled with his warning, marked Pinkerton as a patriotic friend who could be trusted. Luckett told him that only a small band of men, a secret group sworn to silence, knew the full extent of the plans being laid. And he offered Pinkerton the chance to meet the lead man, a barber called Cipriano Ferrandini. Ferrandini's barbershop is run out of the basement of Barnum's Hotel and is a popular meeting place for the men of Baltimore. Luckett assures Pinkerton that every Southern rights man has confidence in Ferrandini. Then he leans in and whispers that Ferrandini would kill Lincoln sooner than see him pass through Baltimore. Naturally, Pinkerton snaps up the invite to meet the man himself. Stepping into the smoke-filled bar that evening, he's introduced to Ferrandini. The dark, wiry, Corsican immigrant turns out to be the staunchest supporter of Southern freedom a man could hope to meet. Having been reminded of his generous donation, Ferrandini takes to Pinkerton immediately. Sitting in a quiet corner of the bar, in a fugue of cigar smoke, with drinks flowing, Ferrandini openly shares his anti-Lincoln, anti-Northern views. He feels that those like him, who are outraged by Lincoln's election, should be allowed to resort to any means necessary to stop him taking his seat. Never shall Lincoln be president, Ferrandini proclaims. He must die, and die he shall. Despite the shocking threat he's just heard, Pinkerton struggles to dismiss the barber as just another crackpot. He's an eloquent, persuasive talker that even a long-in-the-tooth P.I. like Pinkerton finds hard to resist. No matter how the detective presses him, though, 
No specific details of their plot come forward. Leaving the bar with Ferrandini's hateful words echoing in his head, Pinkerton is now certain that the president-elect's life is genuinely in danger. They must get an urgent warning to Lincoln's people, but they're going to need details first. The president-elect has dismissed more than his fair share of death threats already. He's not likely to change his well-publicized schedule over a mere rumor. By the 19th of February, 1861, thanks to the undercover efforts of Kate Warren and Harry Davies, the team is beginning to piece together a rough outline of Ferrandini's plan. According to Lincoln's schedule, he will arrive in Baltimore at the Calvert Street Rail Depot, cross the city in an open carriage, and then continue his train journey to Washington from Camden Street Station. Baltimore's chief of police, himself a vocal secessionist, will only send a handful of officers to police the visit. While Lincoln is being transferred from the Calvert Street Depot, a disturbance will be created in the crowd. With everyone distracted, the assassin will take his shot and make his escape. It's a straightforward enough plan highly likely to be effective. But it's one the detectives may yet be able to thwart. If only they knew who was going to be pulling that trigger. On the 20th of February, Davies gets another break thanks to his new friend Hillard. The belligerent drunk is so convinced of Davies' loyalty that he tells him if he swears an oath of allegiance, he can join Ferrandini's gang of Southern Patriots. And just in time, too, because they're meeting tonight to draw the ballots that will decide who gets to kill Lincoln. The evening air is crisp, and Davy's breath clouds steamy as he strides alongside Hillard through the streets. They arrive at an ordinary house in an affluent area of the city, and Hillard raps twice on the door. The pair are ushered inside and led into a large drawing room where another 20 men are already awaiting. The room is deathly silent. Candles flicker, throwing an orange glow onto the drawn faces, making their somber expressions look almost ghoulish. Ferrandini, dressed from head to toe in black, greets the two newcomers with a curt nod of the head. Davies nods back, oozing respect. Without a word, the gathered rebels form a circle with Ferrandini and Davies at its center. Ferrandini tells Davies to raise his hand and swear his allegiance to the cause of Southern freedom. Davies does as he's told, to murmured approval from the circle. With his initiation over, the circle relaxes and Ferrandini, still center stage, runs over the plan to distract the police at Calvert Street Station. Reaching the end of his speech, Ferrandini suddenly pulls a long, curved knife from inside his cloak and waves it above his head. Gentlemen, he hollers above the growing roar of approval. Lincoln shall never, 
never be president. Cheers and whoops erupt. When calm is restored, they come to the matter of deciding who would, in Ferrandini's words, liberate the nation from the foul presence of the abolitionist leader. And then Ferrandini explains that the wooden chest on the table contains paper ballots for each man. One has been marked in red. That is the assassin's ballot. They will dim the lights so that no one can see each other's ballots. Everyone must keep their results secret. For their own safety, the identity of the honored patriot should stay hidden until the moment of his destiny. One by one, the men reach into the chest and choose their slips. Ferrandini goes last. And so, the deed is done. The choice has been made. Davies had been hoping he'd pull a red ballot, instantly diffusing the threat. No such luck. His ballot is blank, and he has no idea who the shooter will be. With their business concluded, Hillard and Davies head for the bar at Barnum's. Davies wastes no time expressing his deep disappointment at his blank ballot. He claims to be worried that whoever pulled the marked ballot may lose his nerve and their chance will be lost. With a stiff drink in hand, Hillard reassures him that Ferrandini has got that covered. Leaning in, he confides that there were actually eight marked ballots in the box. Even if one or two men chicken out, there's still many more who will take the shot. As soon as he can extricate himself, Davies heads for Pinkerton's office, finding his boss and Kate Warren already in discussion. He shares everything he's learned tonight. They're right about the plot and the way the gang plans to execute it. But instead of there being just one shooter, there'll be at least eight, all believing they're the lone gunman. They have as much proof as they're ever going to get. It's time to warn Lincoln. On the 21st of February, 1861, just three weeks after starting the case, Pinkerton finds himself on a train to Philadelphia. By now, Lincoln's inauguration tour has just passed through New York City. His train is also on its way to the Pennsylvanian capital, and Pinkerton has made plans to meet with Lincoln and his party there. He and his team spent the rest of the previous evening coming up with a plan to protect the president-elect. Heading off alone, he's left Kate Warren and Harry Davies on the ground in Baltimore, listening out for any deviations from Ferrandini's plot. As Pinkerton's train steams through the rural flatlands, he runs through their rescue plan once more. He's going to have to convince Lincoln to abandon the rest of the tour skip the Baltimore stop altogether, and go straight to Washington. It may sound simple enough, but it's not without risk. The problem is, even if he can persuade Lincoln to abandon the tour and depart for Washington early, the only route available to him would still pass through Baltimore. 
the president-elect would have to swap stations in the southern city, leaving him exposed and incredibly vulnerable. The best chance of getting Lincoln through Baltimore safely is if Pinkerton can persuade him to take the 11 o'clock train from Philadelphia that very evening. That way, they can get him in and out of the city before the rebels even realize his plan has changed. At 10.15, just 45 minutes until that train departs, Pinkerton finally gets his chance to meet with the future president. At the luxurious Continental Hotel in Philadelphia, Lincoln steps into the room of one of his most trusted advisors to find Pinkerton waiting for him. Two men know each other. Both worked the railway at the same time, Lincoln as a lawyer and Pinkerton overseeing security. This past association works to Pinkerton's advantage. Lincoln already admires him and trusts his judgment. But when Pinkerton tells him of the plot they've uncovered, Lincoln remains unmoved. Given that he's just been told there's a group of men waiting to murder him, he stays surprisingly calm. Instead of panic, he's saddened that the Southern sympathizers now feel that killing him is the only way to further their cause. Having listened to Pinkerton's proposed escape plan, Lincoln stands from his chair. I cannot go tonight, he says, matter-of-factly and unchangeable. Pinkerton is dumbfounded. He's just told the guy of a certain plot to kill him, and yet he's refusing to change his plans. Lincoln explains that he has promised to raise the flag over the Independence Hall in Philadelphia in the morning, and in the afternoon, he has committed to visit the legislature in Harrisburg. He can't and won't cancel either of those appointments at this late stage. Pinkerton tries to protest, but Lincoln remains firm. But beyond that, he says, I have no engagements. He tells the detectives that if he can come up with a new plan that will allow him to fulfill those two obligations, then he'll agree to it. Pinkerton has no choice. If he's going to save Lincoln's life, he's got a matter of hours to come up with a new plan to get him through Baltimore unscathed. At around 5.45 p.m. on the 22nd of February, 1861, Abraham Lincoln feels a tap on his shoulder. It's the signal he's been waiting for. He's dressed for dinner and has been enjoying the reception laid out for him in Harrisburg by Governor Andrew Curtin. But now it's time to act. With a sigh, Lincoln excuses himself from the table and leaves the room. On his way out, he takes Governor Curtin by the arm and the two men slip into the corridor. Curtin is a staunch ally of Lincoln's and is aware of the threat against his friend. To anyone looking on, it would seem that the two men had gone to speak in private, but Lincoln won't be coming back. He quickly throws on an old overcoat and shoves a soft felt hat into his pocket. Thanking Curtin for his support, 
he heads out the rear entrance bareheaded and hops into a waiting carriage alongside his closest friend and now bodyguard, Ward Hill Lamont. Heading to the station in Harrisburg, the two men board a private train and begin the return trip to Philadelphia. So far, so good. The first part of Alan Pinkerton's plan has gone smoothly, but Lincoln will have to travel over 200 miles tonight, mostly under cover of darkness. And this is the only part of the journey that can be made on private trains. Too many unscheduled special services would draw attention. To remain anonymous, Lincoln must use normal passenger trains, which means the stakes will get exponentially higher with each stop. I mean, come on, Abraham Lincoln is hardly an easy figure to conceal. Standing at about six foot four, his height alone makes him pretty recognizable. There weren't many guys as tall as him at that time. They're gonna need some clever subterfuge to sneak him under the radar. Fortunately, Pinkerton's agents, especially the inimitable Kate Warren, are well-versed in the art of cloak and dagger. Over at the station in Philadelphia, the crew of the 11 p.m. passenger train to Baltimore have received some special instructions. Apparently, there's an important package on its way over, and under no circumstances should the train leave the station without it. Departure is still a few hours away, but the conductor has been told to hold the train at the station until the package is safely aboard. The package is a ruse, though. The real reason they need to hold the train is that Pinkerton has a slight scheduling issue. Now, Lincoln's private train from Harrisburg might not make it to Philadelphia in time for the 11 p.m. to Baltimore. Crew have no idea they're actually delaying departure to save the future President of the United States. If all goes to plan, Lincoln will be smuggled aboard in Philadelphia and arrive in Baltimore in the dead of night, well ahead of the published schedule. To get this next stage right, Pinkerton is relying on Kate Warren to provide the cover. Now in Philadelphia too, Kate Warren has begun her part She's managed to reserve four sleeping berths on the rearmost carriage of the train. No easy feat, since it's a busy service and normally berths are taken on a first-come, first-served basis. But Kate had used her charms and a little folding money to encourage the guard to hold them for her. Having examined the train, she's worried that some passengers might recognize Lincoln as he walks to their carriage. She explains to the conductor that she'll be traveling with her invalid brother, who won't want to be carried through the narrow corridor. The request seems reasonable enough, and the conductor entrusts her with a key to the rear door so her brother can board easily. The same conductor is now standing by the nominated burst, fitting off any other passenger. At 10 p.m., the private train from Harrisburg pulls into Philadelphia Railroad's West Depot. The drivers have kept the furnace raging and the train has sped through the night, arriving at the station well over an hour ahead of schedule. 
which presents Pinkerton with another problem. The passenger train won't leave until 11, and he can't have Lincoln hanging around at either station. Neither can he be on the streets for a risk of being recognized. Thinking on his feet, the detective leads Lincoln and his bodyguard, Lamont, to a waiting carriage, and then proceeds to give the poor driver a series of random directions, leading them in concentric circles around the city. As it draws closer to 11, he finally instructs the frustrated driver to take them to the train depot across town. As last-minute passengers hurry to join the 11 p.m. Baltimore service, Pinkerton, Lamont, and Lincoln now hurry unnoticed along the platform, staying close to the wall to hide in the shadows. Lincoln has pulled the soft-brimmed felt hat low over his eyes, covered his chin with a shawl, and pulled his old overcoat around him. Stooping double to disguise his height, he lets Lamont lead him toward the waiting train. The three men are met by Kate Warren, who, playing her role to perfection, embraces her poor invalid brother warmly. If that brother, the president-elect, is surprised to find that one of his protectors on this dangerous mission is a woman, he doesn't show it. He returns her embrace and follows her to the carriage. The small party boards at the rear of the train and into their waiting box. Kate draws the curtains around Lincoln's berth, and with his long legs bent up to allow him to fit in the small bed, he's secured for the journey. At the same time, the special package arrives at the station and is handed to the conductor. Although it's marked urgent and top secret, it actually contains a bunch of useless papers Pinkerton has gathered to give it some weight. Parcel has done its job. It's time to get the journey underway. Only a few minutes after 11, too. As the train gathers steam, whistling its way out of the station, Kate Warren can finally breathe a sigh of relief. Their work is far from done, but with Lincoln safely tucked up behind his curtain, they have the duration of the journey around four and a half hours to relax before the next challenge. Arriving in Baltimore, the next challenge is quite unique. At 3.30 in the morning, the so-called Nightline train pulls into Baltimore's President Street as planned. But because of a quirk in the city's regulations, no steam trains can travel through the city at night. So, the sleeper carriage is now uncoupled from the engine, with its passengers all still aboard, and then drawn by horses through the streets of Baltimore toward Camden Street Station, just over a mile away. Can you imagine what Farandini and his associates would think if they knew that the target of their awful plot was currently passing through their beloved city right under their noses. <laughs> Incredible. Kate Warren now takes her leave. Her job is done. And she no longer needs to pretend to be Lincoln's sister. Pinkerton and Lamont will continue to protect the president-elect on the final stage of the journey. As the carriage arrives on Camden Street, 
Pinkerton learns of another possible hitch to his plan. The Washington train is delayed. Even the slightest delay is agonizing for the anxious detective. Dawn is approaching, and with every extra moment spent waiting, the risk of Lincoln being recognized grows. If he's discovered here, trapped in the station and cut off from any reinforcements, he'd only have Lamont and Pinkerton to protect him. And even though Lamont is heavily armed, they won't be a match for the militia group they're trying to outsmart. Just as he's weighing his limited options, Pinkerton hears the familiar sound of rail workers arriving on the platform to couple the sleeper carriage to the Washington train for the final leg of their perilous journey. With every mile they travel and every chuff of the steam engine, Pinkerton's anxiety reduces. Washington is now only 38 miles away. They might just make it. It's six in the morning on February the 23rd, 1861. And the Baltimore train is just pulling into the station in Washington. The three weary travelers step off the train. It's been a long, stressful night, but Pinkerton can finally breathe a sigh of relief. They've done it. Lincoln has arrived safely in Washington, just as Pinkerton promised he would. Meanwhile, over in Baltimore, Davies accompanies Hillard to the appointed spot of the intended assassination. As they arrive, though, rumors are already swirling that Lincoln is in Washington. How the hell? Hillard swears, but Davies knows exactly how, and it's a secret he's not about to share. It doesn't matter anyway. The Southern rebels have been thwarted in their best chance to execute the president before he even took office. And they are livid. The history books, though, remind us that ultimately they got their way. No one knows whether the fiercely secessionist young actor John Wilkes Booth, a regular drinker at Barnum's Hotel Bar, ever crossed paths with Ferrandini there. But we do know, though, is that he was the one who finally took what the Southern rebels wanted, Lincoln's life. Abraham Lincoln was shot in Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. on the 14th of April, 1865, by John Wilkes Booth. His loyal bodyguard, Lamont, was not with him. Though his life was cut tragically short, it could have ended so differently had Pinkerton, Davies, and Kate Warren not risked their own lives to save his back in 1861. And had they not succeeded in uncovering and ultimately foiling the Baltimore plot, the course of history in America would have looked very different indeed. The work in Baltimore successfully completed Pinkerton, Davies, and Kate Warren returned to Chicago and moved on to their next assignments. They had no choice. The motto of the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, after all, was, We 
never sleep. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep, we're in Los Angeles in 1910. An explosion rips through the night, tearing the LA Times building apart. Bombs have been detonating across the United States of America for years now, as a war between unions and non-unions rages. This explosion is the latest in that devastating conflict. 20 people die in the LA Times blast, and many more are injured. Famed private detective William J. Burns is hired to find the culprits. He's a man the New York Times once called the only detective of genius whom the country has produced. And he's gonna need all of that wit and talent now. This investigation will take him across the United States, following shady characters with murder on their minds. Will Burns find the bombers before they strike again? Or will this be the case that finally gets the better of this celebrated private investigator? Join us next time on Detectives Don't Sleep for the Crime of the Century. <laughs>